On this edition of the Bill Kelly Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in for Bill, the public inquiry report into Elizabeth Wetlofer's serial killing spree in seniors' homes is coming out today. Uh, What are we going to be expecting? And really, bigger question, is it possible to prevent this in the future? If somebody really wants to do this, can any recommendations really prevent this? Uh, We're going to be talking about Alberta, where there seems to be a bit of a growing sense of a mood for separation, not to the point yet where we're at Quebec a number of years ago where a referendum was held, but the numbers are going up, it seems. More people feeling disenfranchised in Alberta. What's going on there? What is the reason for that? And why all the allergies? Everybody seems to have allergies these days or know someone who has allergies. What is going on? Why are we getting them? And give you a little hint, a suggestion for how to keep your kids from getting them. I don't know if you're going to want to do it. It may smell a little, but it might work. Stick around. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A report from a public inquiry is expected to be delivered today, I think around just afternoon today, into the case of Elizabeth Wetlofer. Now, she was the nurse at several long-term care facilities in the Woodstock area who killed eight people over 10 years, was only caught when she admitted to what she had done. Otherwise, may still be going on. And the expectation is that there will be some sort of recommendations. The hope, I think, for a lot of people is there will be some sort of recommendations that could prevent this in the future. The question is, and I think it's a legitimate and I think it's a troubling and I think it's an important question is, can rules really be put in place that could really prevent this in the future? Because the healthcare system can't run without us trusting our healthcare professionals can we guarantee that there are rules or policies or procedures that would make sure there's not another Elizabeth Wetlofer down the road? Laura Tamblin-Watts is a senior advocate and fellow at the Institute of Aging with the University of Toronto. She joins us now. Laura, thanks for doing this today. Thank you. When you first heard about this story, and I'm sure you followed this back from right when it began, when you first heard about this story, Did it strike you as implausible that such a thing like this could happen? Did this seem like something that really would have required a criminal genius to be able to pull off? Uh, Sadly, no. I mean, I was shocked because, you know, this is obviously a case of a serial killer. But the idea that people are dying due to either some form of neglect or, in this case, outright murder in long-term care, I'm sad to say I wasn't surprised that it could happen. You know, you say serial killer, and she absolutely is a serial killer. I mean, she killed eight people and has been convicted of that and admitted to that. It, part of the problem may be that it almost sounds odd to refer to her with the same words, the same describer that you would use for Paul Bernardo or someone like that. It, it, it almost sounds difficult to wrap your head around that, that a nurse administering medicine is the same as a serial killer. And it it does feel so challenging because, of course, we do have trust in our healthcare system, which is generally good. And we try to have trust in the systems that take care of those who are most vulnerable. And particularly people who are in long-term care are, by their nature, very frail and very vulnerable or they wouldn't be there. But what we know is that there have been enormous problems with our system. And those problems really culminated in the reality of this terrible, terrible incident. We're going to see what the recommendations are, and we're going to see, I mean, inquests like this don't generally point fingers of blame. They just kind of come up with ideas that maybe prevent this in the future. But when you look at something like this, uh, I'll ask you if there's a finger of blame to be pointed. Certainly there's a finger of blame to be pointed at Elizabeth Wetlaw, or no one's going to say otherwise. Is there any that should be also pointed at administration or someone else for not noticing this? Or is this so difficult to see that you look and you say, no, that nobody could have been expected to notice this? This inquiry showed a series of almost unbelievable roadblocks, challenges, and system failures that I don't think is unique to this particular inquiry, but is certainly endemic to the system. When you have a coroner with a straight face saying that no death in long-term care is an unexpected death, you know, your jaw drops because, of course, people can be, in this case, murdered, but have other types of deaths that are not because they are ill or frail. When you have a system 
that doesn't check its paperwork, when you have insulin as an unregulated substance, and when you have, most importantly, dramatic understaffing and underreporting of elder abuse, we eventually end up with a system that can allow this tragedy to happen. Just to go back to something you just said, so I understand this, when you say that they said that anybody in the long-term care could die, which of course makes it difficult to find, do you say that's not the case? Because I mean, a lot of people would say, look, if you've got elderly people who are in long-term care, that would make sense that they could drop dead. I mean, sorry to be so blunt, but that that could happen. Is that not a fair assessment? No, of course, we have long histories in Canada of people who are dying in long-term care systems that have nothing to do with the physical frailty for why they're there. And it's also important to remember that long-term care serves everyone over the age of 18. So there's many younger people with physical disabilities who are there. There's people who have suffered terrible wounds or bed sores that have nothing to do with their physical frailty for why they're there. So certainly one of the things that we need to be looking at is reviewing again our systems, which has allowed a lack of insight into coroner's inquiries. So it used to be in Ontario and um, and this was a common practice in other places, that the coroner would review every so often the deaths in long-term care, maybe one in 10 deaths or, or one in 15 deaths in long-term care as a matter of protocol. And that was dropped. So when you have a system in Ontario where there are no regular coroner reviews of deaths in long-term care system, then that makes it the playground for people who are predators. And we know that our system is not adequately staffed, and the training is often not there to ensure that we do have the right level of care for the people who are in need to prevent tragedy. So if there had been even random, uh, and I don't know if this is going to be one of the recommendations, I have no idea, but if there had been, let's say, a a policy in place that in long-term care facilities, every we're going to take out of every 10 deaths, we're going to do a random autopsy on one of them, just to make sure that things are, and we don't know which one, but we're just going to make sure that we're keeping tabs on this. Do you think that would have prevented this or at least cut this off earlier? Certainly that is the protocol in, in most jurisdictions. And as I say, has been the protocol in Ontario because it does have a preventative or at least a systematic review effect. So if you're seeing every so many uh, deaths, that there's some type of systematic problem, then you can actually be alive to that concern. So it could be a deterrent too. Right. Right. It is obviously, of course, a deterrent. And in the United States, for instance, they have regular death reviews in long-term care. And this is true in other jurisdictions in Canada. Really, Ontario took a big step backwards in its staffing, in its systems to support best care. So that's on the back end. So we're looking at what happens to make sure that when people have died, that they've died of natural causes and not from neglect or, in this case, murder. We really also need to be looking at the front end, and I'm hoping that this is what's going to be um, elucidated in the inquiry today, that we know that the staffing levels are absolutely not what they need to be. We know that people are spending too much time dealing with details and administration and not enough time providing the needed care for people. And so we need to rethink long-term care, and I'm hoping that this inquiry will give us a way forward to do that in Ontario. I am I am not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. Uh, so my knowledge of medicines is uh, limited. I, I can distribute myself an aspirin. That's about it. Um, <laughs> but it is my understanding that if you are a senior, an elderly person, or if you are frail, if you are ill, it wouldn't take as much of an overdose of some kind of medication to do great harm to you. And that's what we're seeing with Elizabeth Wetlaufer, that insulin amounts that maybe some younger person who was healthier might have been able to survive. It's a very simple, a very sneaky, but a very easy thing to hide that allowed her to get away with this. Uh, But it points to, I guess, if nothing else, it points to what we talked about a moment ago, the immense amount of trust that we have to have in our healthcare professionals who are there that if it doesn't take a whole lot to do great damage to you, we have to believe and trust that they have the best interests of us or it's very easy to do damage. 
Absolutely. And I mean, it's important to remember that most people who are working in our healthcare system are dedicated, professional, and out to help. But what we know is that particularly in our long-term care system, that the way that it's been set up, the way that it's been administrated, and the lack of oversight that we see in terms of staffing levels, in terms of empathy, in terms of quality of care, allows for these tragedies, which is, no, it's a unique situation, and but it's indicative of much larger gaps in our system. And we're hoping that this report will make recommendations that are actionable. We're concerned, of course, is that we will get another report. We've had coroner's reports before in long-term care after death, and very little has been done. So the go-forward question will be not just what are the recommendations, but are we going to actually implement them? And you're, I believe you're 100% correct that the enormous 99.999% of people in healthcare are there because they want to help people. But as we've seen in this particular case, or in really any, again, it sounds funny, but any serial killer case, uh, it takes one. That's all it takes. It does take one. And if you think about our systems in providing care for those who are most vulnerable Uh, to abuse, and we would look at people with disabilities, perhaps, or people who are uh, um, having some type of cognitive impairment or child and youth, it's important that we make sure that our system connects and supports not just their physical needs, but their emotional and mental needs and their well-being. We've done a good job of that in other areas, like with children. But what we're seeing is that we need to be rethinking our long-term care system. It was not designed for people to live 80, 90, Mm. and 100 plus years. And so our whole system needs to be rethought through. And the assumptions that we're working within are simply outdated. So long-term care is now a place where our most vulnerable older adults are living. They're making their homes. And we need to make sure that the systems are safe and that the quality and level of care is there to ensure that these terrible, terrible circumstances, these loopholes, or these extraordinary cases like the Wetlawfer case never happen again. Let me ask you something a little bit delicate because some people may blanch at this, especially those if they're nurses or doctors who are listening right now. But uh, my daughter is in nursing, is just finishing her RN program. And back when she started several years ago, Early in the class, I, she was telling us a story that, that, that one of the nurses in a class asked, okay, who wants to go into this line of nursing and whatever? And when they got to labor and delivery, like half or three quarters of the class's hand went up. And that's a very popular one. I don't know what the number was who put up their hand for senior care, but I'm wondering if this is a popular line of work, a popular line of care for nursing and doctors. Are In other words, and again, I ask this delicately, are we getting our best and brightest healthcare people who are going into this to work in long-term care facilities? What I'll say is we're not getting enough people going into geriatrics and gerontology. It's a huge field where we have an enormous need for professional development. The people we do get are usually passionate about that area. They've chosen that area, but we have so many fewer geriatricians that we need. We have so many fewer geriatric nurses than we need. We have so many fewer geriatric um, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, and so on. So if people are looking for where we need to build capacity in the space, it is in the field of aging. But we've seen studies before about ageism in medical school, not in nursing school, but in medical school. And uh, a quite famous study a few years ago did a test at the beginning and the end of medical school about the level of ageism that the incoming students had. You mean as far as and what it, they want to get into with their work? Well, and what they wanted to get in with their work, yes, but also what their attitudes were about oh. older people versus younger people. And so this attitudinal test was done, and they found that after graduating medical school, they were markedly more ageist. They had more negative ideas of older people than even when they started. So we need to rethink our system to ensure that we address this idea that older people are worth less. And when we're thinking about our population, you know, we always say, unless you're doing pediatrics or obstetrics, you're going to be doing geriatrics because, frankly, that's who our population is. We'll be about 
one in four people over the age of 65 by 2030 in Canada. We already have more older adults over 65 than kids 15 and under. So with our demographic shift, we need the health care to shift along with it. But we are starkly underqualified and understaffed in this area. Yeah, and, and I'll say this. I've talked to a number of nurses about this. Working with seniors can be delightful because they are delightful people, but it can also, some of the stuff you have to do as a nurse can be a real grind. It's not always light and fluffy. And meanwhile, you know, handling babies in labor and delivery, also a very difficult job, but boy, 99 days out of a hundred, it's happy news because someone's going home with a baby. So it, it can be tough, I would guess, to draw people into this if they don't have a huge passion for it. And one of the, the things that we've really seen is that the model of care that we deliver to older adults, particularly in long-term care systems, creates negativity, both in terms of more work, more types of work that are unappealing to people and with a less uh, connected approach between the care provider and the older adult. And that's why we are looking really with great interest to see what's happening in innovation of long-term care. You may have heard about some of the dementia villages. We had some uh, overseas Mm -hmm. in Europe, and now we've got two in Canada, which has started up. And we're seeing great success, for instance, in Peel Region and uh, and now in the city of Toronto with models like the Butterfly Model or the Eden Alternative Model, which turns long-term care thinking on its head and is all about how do you make that emotional connection and how do you make sure that you are really valuing the person. And what we see is that staff satisfaction rates skyrocket when the model of care changes. But a piece of that is also we need to make sure that the staffing levels are appropriate. And we know right now that in Ontario long-term care systems, we only need one RN per long-term care, and that's shocking. Laura, I only have 30 seconds, so I'm sorry I can't give you more, but can a can the uh, suggestions, the recommendations, can they prevent this, or can they only help to prevent this in the future? Well, I think that the issue of a serial killer is unique to the circumstance, but what I can say is if the recommendations are progressive, and if we act on them, then we will certainly have a better long-term care system. Laura Tamblin-Watts, a fellow at the Institute of Aging at University of Toronto. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for taking it. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new poll is out, a new survey is out, talking to people out west, in Alberta specifically, And it seems that we in Ontario may have been sleeping on a bit of a story here, which is a growing sense of anger and disenfranchisement out West. This new poll says one in four Albertans is now in favor of separation. And if you find, look at other numbers, there have been other polls that have been done recently that don't say one in four, because this sounds like it's sort of a strong position that we should do this. There have been other polls that say up to 70% of Albertans don't feel negatively about the idea of separation. There is anger out there for sure. And this one in four that is the more solid number, this is roughly the same number that exists in Quebec where the idea of separation has been around for, for a long, long time and always sort of just bubbles under the surface. Doesn't mean, of course, out in Alberta, it doesn't mean that the breakup of Canada is suddenly imminent or anything like that, but it does say, I think, something about the difficulty of managing a massive nation with divergent interests and lots of different things going on and lots of people with different points of view. And I think it says something about how perception matters. If you're in a particular region, your perception is going to matter about what's going on in the rest of the country. Let me bring in Henry Jacek, who's a professor of political science at McMaster University. Henry, thanks for doing this today. No problem, Scott. Uh, on a very high level, broad level, 30,000 foot looking down situation, do they have a right to be angry? Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a difficult question. Um, I, certainly, I, I think we need to understand why they're angry. Uh, there's been a long history... <coughs> out in the Alberta and the West that they felt that they had been exploited by, uh, by Ontario and, uh, and the rest of the East uh, in, the province, uh, in the country. Um, and then uh, they, they were well, a lot of people, and I think it's probably useful for people to understand a bit of this history. I mean, Alberta was relatively a poor province until 1946, 
badly hurt by the Great Depression in the 1930s. The farmers suffered a lot, and it basically was a farming province at that point. Now, then, now the 1946, in comes the oil of the first well at Leduc, Alberta, and they have now something that's worth a lot of money, uh, and now uh, they want to be able to, you know, live uh, the type of life they thought, they think that the people out in eastern Ontario live, and uh, they are always very sensitive that they're not getting full value for the asset they have, which is the oil in the ground. And, of course, if you look at all the fights that have been going on, I know it's very complicated for people and you get lost in all the details, all these pipeline fights that we've had over the last four years, they're really, it's from the Alberta point of view, is they want pipelines that will allow them to sell um, their oil at the highest price on the world market. And they, you know, they feel that, uh, you know, Canadian politics doesn't allow them to do that. And they just they're just very frustrated, and so that that in a nutshell is why they're they're upset. I think we can you know it, it's understandable, but it's uh, you know building pipelines in this country is a comp- very complicated business. And sometimes it's easier, and it's a weird thing. It's easier for us to understand American situations because we see so much American news. But I was trying to translate this and. If we, what what would we expect would be the response, say, in Texas, where they are surviving still a lot on oil, if suddenly the U.S. government put rules in that says, you know what, your oil is going to be landlocked in Texas and you can't get it somewhere else. I think we would see an equal response and probably wouldn't be shocked by that. And yet I think some people are being surprised by the idea that Alberta is as angry as it is. Yeah, well, the Alberta's you know, comparing uh, Alberta and Texas is a great comparison. First of all, there's a lot of interaction between Texas and and, uh, and and Alberta, and the reason is is that a lot of people who are you know have been involved in the oil industry over the last 50 years in Alberta ha- have been Americans or people with Texas experience. Now, Texas has a great advantage Alberta doesn't have. It has its own ports. It's 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 on the ocean, so the U.S. government uh, doesn't have cannot have the type of control over Texas oil that the rest of the country can have over Alberta oil. Alberta oil, to get out to the world, has to have a pipeline that has to reach the ocean, and they don't have any ocean frontage. Texas has got a lot of ocean frontage, and they, they're able to basically say, well, if we're not getting the money we want in the United States, we're, we can ship it somewhere else. So they're in a much they're in a much better position geographically. So it's... Uh, so, and I think there's probably a lot of Albertans who probably wish that they were Texans then <laughs> <laughs> had that ocean frontage that so they that that would give them a lot more leverage against the national government. Well, let's go through a few of the things because certainly oil, I think, would be at the top of the list, and that's what most people would understand, and right. pipelines and everything else. Uh, the other week, and this sort of I, maybe puts a bit of a highlight, and this may be partially what has brought this to the surface again. The other week, the prime minister was at a rally in Quebec, and I can't remember what the riding was, but he was introducing a new candidate for the Liberals. And this guy was a former member of Greenpeace, who's a staunch, staunch, staunch anti-pipeline activist in Quebec. The next day, he flies to Alberta and says, oh, we're here to help you with the pipelines. And it's like people in Alberta don't have the internet or newspaper or radio or TV. (laughs) And they're looking, I think, saying, well, which is it? Like, you're telling us one thing, and you're telling a different audience that we're behind you 100% as you fight against our pipelines. It seems there's a mixed message, which may also be causing some of this anger. Yeah, this is um, this is a problem uh, for Justin Trudeau. Ever since he became leader, even be, of the Liberal Party, even before he became prime minister, he's tried to ride two horses. Horse number one, of course, he's you know Quebec's favorite son, and uh, there is a lot of um, you know there's a, people in Quebec, of course, would like to get Alberta oil and uh, money from Alberta uh, to help them out and. Uh, the uh, and and also the uh, he so he he has to you know that's his base um, and he has to keep it strong and win those uh, most a uh, vast majority of those ridings to be successful and at the same time he recognized that his father uh, Pierre when he was uh, prime minister alienated the West and Alberta in particular uh, by seeming to be indifferent to the problems uh, of selling their 
their assets uh, uh, on the world market for a good good price. So he wanted to be different. He said, no, listen, I'm going to support uh, some pipelines. I'm going to support Alberta when they want to try to make some, you know, some real money out of the oil uh, that they have in the ground. And so he, he has said that over and over again. He's gone out there. Um, he's, he's bought one of the pipelines. The federal government's bought one of the pipelines to try to make sure it's going to go through. But at the same time, it's sort of a half-hearted. It's not giving Alberta everything they want, but it gives them something. And at the same time, he wants to keep the Greens uh, and, the, and the, you know, people, the people who are really against uh, these pipelines and against the uh, use of fossil fuels like, like oil, he wants to keep them happy. It's, it's, in, it's really, when you come down to it, it's, it's an impossible position. It's very hard riding two horses, one foot on each horse, and sooner or later you say the horses are going to throw you on the ground. Uh, and you said a lot of things there that are all very valuable, but one thing stood out to me, uh, and the word it's a one word, Quebec. And it yeah. seems that this, almost these days, is as much a fight between Alberta and Quebec as it is between a fight of Alberta and the rest of Canada. And reading a bunch of things, reading a bunch of columns from Alberta recently about this, the sentiment seems to be the federal government bends over backwards and turns itself into origami to try and make sure that things are okay in Quebec. If there's a problem, it jumps in. Bombardier needs a bailout. Boom, right. we're there. Uh, SNC-Lavalin, you know, we're here to protect jobs. They'll bend the rules a little bit to protect jobs. And yet when our jobs are failing mm-hmm. and flying out the window, eh, we're a little slow on the draw. Yeah, well, and of course, that's because, first, well, two things. First of all, Quebec is a much larger province with a lot more seats, so it's much more important in a, in a federal election to, to win in Quebec than to win in Alberta, Al- although over time Alberta is getting more and more seats because it's a growing province. But even so, Al- Quebec has a lot more seats than Alberta, so, so that's that reason. And, of course, the you know um, there is also this fear of... Uh, which we've gone through off and on over the last 50 years of 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 a much str- stronger um, uh, independence movement in Quebec uh, uh, than than we would have anywhere else, and so so uh, when it comes to Quebec, I mean, uh, people in Alberta are absolutely correct. The, the federal government walks on eggshells, and. Uh, and and they see that, and uh, they say, you know, how come you you give them all that special treatment, but not us, and when when we have problems. So, you know, and then then there's the you know they they also people in Alberta probably think that now because they have all this oil and they get a good price for it in Canada, although they could get a better price on the world market, that that essentially they're not getting the 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 money that they ought to be getting, and so the the government yeah the federal government is slow to make sure that uh, Alberta is getting its uh, getting the rewards that it should get given given what the oil it has in the ground so yeah so that's the way Albertans see it and and you know there's all there's a lot of truth in what they see and it's you know it's 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 sort of the context of Canadian politics and uh, we all sort of you know at times in the past have you know basically tried to keep Quebec happy and and uh, happier than anywhere else, and uh, but that's the cost of trying to keep the government together. But of course, that makes the people out west, especially in Alberta, unhappy. Yeah, and don't even start with equalization payments in Alberta, or you might have someone that's shove right. a pitchfork up your nose. Um, but yes, yeah, so you're right. We have over the years walked on eggshells, as you've said. We have gone to great lengths to placate Quebec to um, to find ways to keep it happy. Now that we are starting to see some bit of a, a number, a real number in Alberta with the separatist idea, mm-hmm. should we be doing the same? Should the federal government be saying, we got to take this seriously and find new ways to placate Alberta, give them a few treats and baubles to, to make them happy? Yeah, well, I think, I think uh, yeah, you may, we have to think about a, a strategy, a federal strategy that uh, seems to, uh, you know, uh, reward and show that Alberta is important. Um you know, certainly, you know, supporting things like uh, Winter Olympics, for example, is a good is is one way we've done it in the past, and I'm sure we're going to do it in the future. Um, and uh, so, there's other things that can be, you know, other things that pro- possibly can be done uh, to to try to make the people of Alberta feel that you know you're you're not second class citizens, and we're not you know trying to hold you down in any way. I, I let me mention one other thing that please. Sorry, I, I thought there was one other thing that holds. 
that, that, that has changed very recently that I think really bothers Albertans. used to be that Alberta could get the uh, other three Western provinces to argue with the, United, uh, with, with the federal government. Now with the um, British Columbia has changed. It's become politically a much greener province. So not only does the uh, people in Alberta have to fight with the federal government, they have to fight with the, um, with the British Columbia population, the British Columbia government, when it comes to pipelines going to uh, the Pacific Ocean. So that, you know, that really, I'm, I think that really has added a new dimension of grievance uh, for the people of Alberta. And it's not directed at the federal government so much as it is their neighbors in British Columbia who they see have turned on them. In the ta- in the years that we have been working with walking on those eggshells with Quebec, that has translated into some special we'll call it powers that Quebec right, has that other right. provinces don't have. They have some veto powers in certain right, areas. Right, right. Uh, we were just reading that when the new Supreme Court justice is going to be named, Quebec is going to have a say in this. None of the other provinces individually are going to be able to have some stake in this. Right. Could Alberta leverage its way into those powers legitimately with this, or is this just a temper tantrum as far as the federal government is concerned? Well, we, you know, the federal government and most of the population really believes that the people of Ontario, or, I'm sorry, the people of Alberta are not really going to separate, uh, that it is, you know, it's more than a temper tantrum, but it is some of that. But it's not realistic. And they also know that, you know, the, if, you, if we do studies of the people of Alberta, they're actually very proud to be Canadians. I mean, they're very proud to be Albertans, but they're also very proud to be Canadians. So they're, they're not one or the other. They're actually both. And so the, the loyalty to Canada by Albertans runs deep and, uh, and probably much deeper and much broader than it does in Quebec, where, of course, Quebec is, you know, has a much stronger loyalty to their province, primarily among the Francophone population, because the language is different. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have in a country where you have an aggrieved province economically, and they also have a different language than the rest of the, prov- the country, yeah, that, that's really usually more of a problem. But the, the, um, the people in Alberta have, uh, don't have, you know, have the same language we do, and also they do have, we knew, know from many surveys, they, they are very proud Canadians as well. And so they're trying to, they want to be, uh, you know, as Albertans, they, they think economically, but in terms of their identity, I think they think, they, they think as uh, Canadians, I think the federal government and federal politicians realize this and, you know, so they don't get nearly as worried about Alberta separatism as they do about Quebec separatism. So 25%, you know, yeah, it's a little concerning, but it's nothing to get too ruffled about because probably that's not going to change. For Alberta to get the kind of concessions that Quebec has, whether we think that's a good idea or not, would it be fair to say that it would require the kind of constitutional crisis that a real referendum or a real strong separatist movement would bring? Well, I don't think you're going to see a referendum. I think, um, I, I, I one of the things, the situation we're in now, because we're just before a federal election, and and then you add to that, you have a new Alberta government. So I think what probably both the Alberta government, the premier there, and whoever's going to be the prime minister again, assuming that's Trudeau, uh, they, I think they're going to wait for the election, let the dust settle, how did it turn out, and then go into some kind of negotiations. So I think right now there, a lot of things are going to be a lot clearer and probably uh, more tranquil after the federal election. Right now, because everything's up in the air, you don't know who's going to be the major federal player, uh, you don't know how that election is going to turn out, um, then, then you know, you, people are sort of uneasy and on edge. And also, you know, we have also a new Alberta government. We're really not sure how the new, uh, the new Alberta government what its re- its demands are going to be in a very clear way they you know we haven't really seen the package of stuff that they want i think once the federal government ha- uh, election is over then the the gov- alberta government sa- are going to say this is what we want from the federal government and then and then uh, then we'll see how the federal government responds and i think for, with a bunch of things they'll probably respond uh, more positively the, but they can't uh, you know they have to be careful about doing it now um, you know, because it's 
you know, they want to, if they make a deal with Alberta, they want uh, it to be a deal that they're willing to give up something, but they also want to go tell the rest of the country Alberta's committed to this deal and they're not going to come up with new things. So it's hard to, hard to negotiate at this time uh, before an election. Uh, last thing, does a pipeline and a flourishing economy in Alberta once again just resolve all this and everything goes back to smiles and chuckles and happiness? Well, the more the more the more prosperity you have in Alberta. I mean, we know in general. I mean, the people when, when when there's a lot of money around, people feel happier. <laughs> so uh, yeah, when when people feel that their pocket is bulging with money, uh, yeah. And I what I always look for. Uh, uh, and most people won't think a political scientist to pay attention to it, but I certainly do. Is how much money people spend at Christmas time. So we're going to have an election in uh, you know in in, in the fall. But right, in, and actually the election will be occurring when people are already starting to do their Christmas shopping. And we know that uh, when we study, uh, if people have, feel they have more money to spend in Christmas this year than last year, at the end of the Christmas season, people are really very positive and upbeat. So, so if they've got a lot of money in their pockets going into the, you know, into the Christmas se- in season and afterwards, then it's the Alberta government will probably get less things out of the federal government because the federal government will say, hey, your people, you know, had a lot of money, have a lot of money in their pockets right now. We know they're not going to be terribly upset. So all these things are interconnected, and they really won't be clear, I think, until January is my view. Henry Jacek, uh, political science professor at McMaster, thanks as always for your time. Okay, very good, Scott. Nice talking to you. Uh, another professor, by the way, just as we wrap this up, University of Calgary professor, uh, Barry Cooper, he said this to Global News a couple of weeks ago about what's going on in Alberta. He goes, it's not alienation. That's what Laurentian Canadians project as a kind of psychological problem Western powers have. But they understand perfectly well their interests are not being looked after by the government of Canada. Simple as that. There is gurgling anger out there. Whether Where it goes, whether it goes anywhere, we'll see. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a, well, let me back up for a second. When I was in school, the most common lunch that people brought from home every day would have been a drink, a fruit of some kind, a wagon wheel. Oh, I love the wagon wheels. Back when they were the size of a small pizza, not like now when they're the size of a loony. Uh, and, and the important part here. A peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I know for some of you of a younger age group, that is shocking. Shocking. Peanut butter at school? Are you nuts? Someone will die. Well, yeah, that's true. Maybe. But once upon a time, everybody apparently wasn't deathly allergic to everything. At least that's how it seemed. Now, oh, as I say, you bring a peanut butter sandwich to school, you're going to have the SWAT team show up. In hazmat uniforms, suddenly peanut allergies aren't just an occasional annoyance that somebody has and it makes them a little sniffly or sneeze or something. Now, peanut allergies legitimately are deadly. People will die from this. They'll go into anaphylaxis. They will die. Uh, Same with shellfish. People will have those kind of responses. Gluten is now a problem for some. Lactose intolerance is all over the place. On and on and on. What is with all the allergies? And why are they popping up all of a sudden? Dr. Joseph Greenbaum is a Hamilton allergist. He's assistant clinical professor in the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at McMaster University. Uh, Doctor, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome. Thanks. Uh, It may be seeming only a perception, I guess, that allergies are everywhere, but there's no doubt that there are more people with allergies these days, correct? For sure. Compared to, let's say, the 50s, 60s, 70s, yes. Uh, a sharp increase in uh, food allergy and other allergies since then. Is it too strong a word to say there's been a spike in allergies? Uh, a gradual increase over time, like another 5-10% each year. Maybe a spike in, uh, suggests that suddenly boom. No, it's just climbing, sort of slowly climbing. But I think the climb has uh, stopped and it's sort of leveled off at a higher, much higher level than in the past, where like in 1950, maybe 3, 4, 5% of the population had this. Now we're at 20, 24. Wow. Yeah, but it's not increasing further. It's sort of leveling or increasing very minimally from there. 
For a little bit of background, and, and mostly because I have no idea the answer to this question, can you explain, can you take a, a few seconds, a few minutes, whatever it takes, to explain what happens in your body when you are allergic and you are subject to an allergen? What is happening and why is it so dangerous? Uh, what you're allergic to uh, encounters something called IgE, allergic antibodies, okay, which are sitting on top of these little bombs, uh, like nuclear bombs, you know, uh, um, all over your body, uh, inside, in your uh, respiratory tract, on your skin, in your mouth, okay, and when this allergic antibody attached to this bomb called mast cell encounters the allergy uh, thing, the peanut, it explodes and it releases all kinds of nasty chemicals that result in all the kind of things that we're talking about, like hives and swellings and trouble breathing and um, uh, fall in blood pressure and uh, swelling of throat and uh, collapse. And where then do the, not everybody obviously has these, so how does one get no, no, them? What well, causes no, no, them? Everybody has these little bombs. Oh. Out. Okay, and normally they're very quiet and they're, uh, they're involved in minute regulation of things in the body, you know, uh, a little bit more open blood vessel here, a little bit more closing there. You know, they're just sort of normal little regulatory officials doing their little job. But if you hit the wrong aspect of it, suddenly there's an explosion. And so why do some people, why are some people subject to these explosions while other people wouldn't be? Because they are making these allergic antibodies where the, uh, let's say the majority, 75%, don't make them. And they were making them against certain items like peanut or grass pollen or cats or dogs or whatever. And when that allergen hits it, you explode. Do we know why some people, and I suppose this is yeah. the $20 billion question because this would end allergies maybe, but do we know why some people are able to fight them off, why they don't have the bombs or at least the bombs going off and why some people do? Right. They're not making those allergic antibodies. Uh, part of it is genetic predisposition, but a lot of it is uh, what you're encou- how you're raised, how you uh, grow up, what you're encountering in your environment as you grow up. So we know for sure that, um, uh, let's say, if you don't wash a child, don't bathe the baby, and just leave them, maybe wipe them off from time to time if they're a little dirty, which happens in some places in Africa today. They don't have running, running water, and they're not giving them baths and showers. Uh, the incidence of allergy stays at 5%. And in Western society, where we're taking daily showers, but especially washing the babies at an early age, uh, you're wiping off a certain layer of protection, oily layer of protection on the skin. And uh, believe it or not, the the peanut um, allergy, uh, the, uh, the thing in the peanut that you're allergic to, is airborne. And um, tiny bits of it uh, uh, hit the skin, and the skin... Uh, and uh, migrate through the skin into the body, and in small quantities in, in infants start making uh, the infants produce allergic antibodies. But if you've got this oily layer on your skin, then that doesn't happen. So you can prevent it you know, by not bathing. But in Western society where we're very clean, and we don't let the kids um, crawl on the dirty floor, uh, then uh, you're into an allergy mode that... Uh, gives you allergy to whatever the items might be that you're encountering. It's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't, because if you don't bathe your kid regularly, you're probably going to have children's aid beating down your door because a neighbor is going to report you. And if you do clean them all the time, they're subject to maybe getting allergies. Well, uh, you wash them off a little bit from time to time, like once a day. (laughs) Hose them down once a month. A little bit. (laughs) Act as if you were back, uh, you know, in the caveman days where you just kept them clean, but not daily showering and scrubbing. I don't know if this applies. It may be the reason, but I was reading something about a study that was done a few years ago on Amish people, and I'm not suggesting Amish people yes, don't bathe, yes, but yes. they have almost no allergies within their community. Is that why? Well, they're not. there's a lot of little things that are going on. One of them is the bathing. Another one uh, is exposure to um, uh, dirt. And so they have uh, barns, uh, you know, and lots of... Um, uh, bacterial products on the floor of the barns, and they take the the mothers go and milk the cows, and they bring the babies along, and the babies are crawling in the hay and all that. So they're being exposed to things that uh, produce immunity, make them stronger in a certain immune way, and pr- that prevents the emergence of allergy. And uh, it's not just Amish. There's there's places in Germany where, believe it or not, um, uh, you live in the house, and the barn is downstairs, you know, and you just go up and down through the barn. 
and the, again, the mothers are taking the kids into, and the babies into the barns and doing all kinds of farm chores, okay? and the kids are crawling around and getting exposed to all this kind of dirt, which becomes protective against allergy. I, I was reading a second study about a different group, and it was about Jewish kids, and I don't think the Jewish yes. part has anything to do with it. It's just a geographical thing, but it, they looked at Jewish kids in Israel and Jewish kids in the United States. No, Lond- uh, Israel and London. London, pardon me. Yes, and yes. apparently the Jewish kids in Israel were a tenth as likely to have the allergies, peanut yes. the peanut allergy, as the Jewish kids in the States. Yes. So you're looking at a common... DNA or a common genetic yeah, or something? same genetic uh, factor. So the, the difference is that the London kids don't eat peanut butter because they're afraid of becoming allergic. Don't eat peanut butter until they're three, four, five or whatever. Okay, but the Israeli kids, right as soon as they're able to chew, eight, six months, are uh, eating this um, uh, kind of potato chip that they have in Israel called bomba. It's kind of a corn kind of thing um, where you um, have peanut butter embedded in this corn. Uh, so you can actually buy Bamba now, and it's becoming very popular to feed infants Bamba. What about the idea, though, that if you're a parent here, and, and what you're saying is, I mean, it's fascinating that maybe we clean our kids too much, and maybe we should expose our kids to some of these foods that w- might create allergies right. younger. But what we would be terrified. A lot of parents would be terrified of giving your one-year-old peanut butter here for fear that they will have a reaction and die on the spot. So if you are um, uh, very high risk, in other words, the kid has a a lot of eczema and there's a lot of allergy in the family, you should still do that but in the doctor's office. But if you don't have high risk, uh, there isn't a lot of allergy in the family like a lot of summer allergies and a lot of other food allergies and the child doesn't have eczema then today the recommendation is as soon as they can start swallowing to start feeding them all the bad little things that you are worried about, like peanut butter, like uh, sesame seed, like uh, uh, egg, you know, uh, even a shellfish if you want to. So in, in, early introduction is the key word, the, the, um, the paradigm now to early introduce these things and be, make the child tolerant so the algae doesn't have a chance to develop. Well, that, is it the same as an inoculation? Essentially, like yeah. you go to get a needle for yeah, tetanus yeah. or whatever else. I'll, or I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll say yes, yes. Uh, you're you're beca- you're tolerizing. Uh, it's a, it's a slightly different mechanism. One way you're sort of actively trying to produce an immunity against something, but in the other way, like the children, you're making them tolerant of something, so less likely to develop allergy. It isn't a hundred percent foolproof, but it strongly has uh, reduced the incidence of algae, like you see in these two Jewish populations. So, yeah, and, and the Jewish one is fascinating to me because there, there, I suppose, have been some, some people might have thought that over the years, our food, you know, genetically modified food or something, the peanut has changed and it's become more alert. It, it, it clearly no. sounds like it's not the, the food that's changing, it's us that's changing. Yes, it's not the food at all. And gen- genetically modified is something totally different and perfectly harmless, I think, you know, but it's got nothing, nothing to do with the peanut and the allergy anyway, so it's not connected at all. As I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, a lot of the allergies that are coming into play now, though, are adult onset allergies, which show up a little later in life. If you, how is that happening? Because surely if you're not exposed to it, the allergy would show up first time you're exposed when you're five or six or seven. Why when you're an adult? Well, see, the children thing we understand a little bit better, you know, keeping them uh, more or less on the dirty side and exposing them to dirt on the floors and things like this, and early introduction. We understand that in tolerizing. But some um, allergies develop later in life and commonly, you know, and that is something that is really not understood. Like why suddenly you're allergic to cashews and almonds and things like that when you're 40 or 50, and shellfish when you've been eating it all your life, and, and suddenly things turn around in 40 and 50, you... You know, that is not something that's well understood. So you're fine with it all your life, and then all of a sudden you have it yes. one day and there's a reaction. It's very common. You know, I've seen uh, some people who ate, I saw one guy who ate shellfish one day and he was fine, and the next day he had anaphylaxis, and sorry, that's it. And he stayed like that, you know. And you see the same thing with drugs. You know, you can take penicillin all your life, and suddenly you take it, and boom, you became allergic. So uh, that is not 100% uh, understood. There is another side to this too, and clearly the allergies are an issue, but there was something that I was reading about at one point that was talking about self-diagnosing and that a lot of people 
self-diagnose an allergy, which turns out not really to be an allergy. There may be a sensitivity, there may be some kind of reaction, but it's not really an allergy. Yes, well, you have to use the words properly. So when you talked about lactose intolerance, that has been around forever. That is not changing, and that's like at least half of the population, and that is something genetic. Half the population? I think so, yes. Like uh, children usually tolerate lactose well, and then as you get into the higher up, you know, into your 40s and 50s, 50%, 50%, especially um, blacks, okay, uh, and especially uh, people from Northern Europe, uh, half of them are lactose intolerant to some extent. But based on the same... No, it's a totally different thing. So it's, it's not the it's, theory that if you uh, give it to someone early, they can get no, rid of their intolerance. No, no, no because that w- one is um, immune and allergic, okay, and the other is... Um, uh, lack of an enzyme to digest the sugar, and it's uh, a deficiency of something, and it's totally unconnected to immunity or allergies. It's a totally different thing. And also the um, gluten intolerance, uh, totally unconnected to allergy in any way. It's just your body's inability to properly digest gluten. Do you find that people, if they've had some sort of adverse reaction to something, just automatically assume that it's an allergy and maybe decide I'm not going to eat that again and therefore they just stop and go on telling everyone I have allergies without ever getting diagnosed? Uh, allergy doctors see that all the time. Somebody gets a rash, maybe caused by a virus, maybe caused by some irritation, maybe ca- caused uh, by scraping your skin a little bit, you know, and suddenly say it must be because I ate this or that or the other and suddenly you're afraid to eat this forever. You're, you're done. Uh, it, so we, very commonly misunderstood. Okay. We only have a few seconds left here, but uh, you can acquire an allergy later in life. You were just explaining. Someone could be 40 and suddenly have anaphylaxis from shellfish. Yeah. If you have an allergy as a child, can you get rid of an allergy? For sure. Uh, we know that maybe 40% of people with peanut allergy lose it. And the adults that we talked about earlier who become in adult life allergic to uh, shellfish or peanuts or whatever, uh, they often, not always, outgrow it as they get older. How? What, what changes? Um, you know, it's like saying, like, why do you need a booster for tetanus every 10 years? Because um, your uh, protective antibodies, after a while, if they're not re-stimulated, are lost. Your body says, well, I'm not encountering this. I don't have to keep on bothering to make more uh, immunity against tetanus. So if you're not, uh, if you totally avoid this for a while, you stop producing the allergic antibodies, your body starts uh, going off in other directions using its resources for some other purpose and you lose those allergic antibodies. At the risk, as we go, at the risk of causing someone to do something entirely dangerous, which is not what I want to do, but you've mentioned before that maybe if you are exposed to some of these things, you can create almost an inoculation of sorts. If you have some kind of allergy, if you expose yourself to that, can you get rid of it by creating that same inoculation? Or once you have the allergy, just avoid, avoid, avoid. You, you can become desensitized, so it's no longer a problem, for example, with allergy shots or with uh, taking small bits of it, like we're now desensitizing people to peanuts by giving a small amount, but you've got to do the first little bit in the hospital you know, or uh, in the doctor's office. You don't want to have anaphylaxis from your first exposure. <laughs> Good but idea. then you gradually, gradually, like you say, inoculate yourself and I'm doing that, for example, with uh, peanut, uh, uh, not every day, but frequently. And I have a number of patients who are slowly, uh, the first dose in a hospital, and then slowly going higher. And so they're becoming intolerant. They're able to now eat peanut. It's, uh, it's a fascinating thing. And certainly, uh, I don't think there's a person out there who doesn't know someone who is or claims to have an allergy. It certainly is everywhere. Uh, Dr. Joseph Greenbaum, really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, again, it's, uh, do you know, are you out there, if you're out there and you don't know anyone who says they or their kids have an allergy, you are, I would suggest deeply, deeply, deeply into the minority, but there is hope. All you got to do is let your kids get dirty, go live with the Amish. Nah, I don't think that's all you got to do, but it's really interesting that some of those, some of those things that we would never want to consider doing are the tricks to help with allergies. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.